0: This morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. So if you wanted to turn there, we will begin reading there in a moment. I grew up here in Clay. I'm not foreign to the church. I grew up in church. Um, In fact, I went to church just down the road at Clay United Methodist Church at the corner of uh, Clay-Palmodel Road and Old Springville Road. I was baptized in that church at the age of 13. Church is, like I said, church is not a foreign idea to me. Uh, grew up in church. I knew the stories. I heard the stories. I knew who Jesus was. Then at age 16, I got a driver's license. And I got a car. And then I got more and more independence to the point where now church attendance became less and less important to me until it wasn't important to me at all. However, I cannot recall a time in my life when I would not have denied Christ and told you I was not a Christian. But in August 2009, God saved me. I was just shy of my 38th birthday. You see, even with my background in church, as I grew into adulthood... My apathy and, quite frankly, borderline hostility with the church and the things of the church grew to the point where I had no desire for the church. I had no desire for Christ's bride. However, after Christ saved me, my desires changed. I did not change them. They were changed in spite of me. My desire for the things of the church increased and my appetite to know this God that saved me increased the desire to study God's Word grew to the point where it was an almost insatiable desire. Brian Branham, my pastor at the time, was very instrumental in my discipleship early on. From being able to download and listen to all of his sermons while I was at work, to meeting periodically with him for lunch, to attending men's Bible study groups that he led for the men of the church. I was able to ask questions and begin to grow in knowledge of the Word of God. Like I said, I was familiar with the Bible because of my time growing up in the church. I knew who Jesus was and what he had done for sinners. But the other stories seemed to be disconnected from the larger narrative to me. I didn't see what they had to do with Jesus dying on the cross for sin, but that began to change in August 2009. And as we will see in today's text, the Holy Spirit began to do a work in me, and by God's grace continues to this day. Let's begin reading our text this morning, beginning in chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, guide us today by your Holy Spirit, enabling us to grow in our understanding of your revealed Word. Grow us in your sanctifying knowledge that comes only through your truth. Lead us as we continue in our worship of you. May you be glorified in this place today, and may you be glorified by our lives throughout the week in the places where you have us and the people that you place before us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Have to excuse me. I've had a rough night. (laughs) I'm I'm a bit dehydrated, so forgive me if I have to take a drink of the water from periodically. As I come to this text, I think it's important, and it's something that I like usually like to do. Is I like to look back for context. Where are we in the text? Roughly two months ago, these disciples were probably at the lowest point of their lives. Their teacher, their friend, had just been unjustly arrested, unjustly placed on trial for a crime he did not commit. And as we will see and have seen in our study of Luke's gospel, as well as our knowledge of the other three gospels, we know that these disciples at times appear to not quite understand Jesus' teaching. They appeared to not quite understand just who Jesus was. But what they did know was that he was treated unjustly. They did know that he was placed on trial unjustly. And that he was ultimately executed for a crime he did not commit. In fact, he could not commit the crime he was punished for, namely blasphemy. For it is impossible for Jesus to blaspheme. Now they did have some understanding of who Jesus was because when Jesus called the disciples, among the first disciples he called was Andrew, the brother of Peter. Andrew immediately goes to find Peter and John records for us in his gospel that when Andrew finds him, he says to Peter, we have found the Messiah. And he brought him to Jesus. Their problem was that they had a preconceived notion as to who the Messiah would be and what the Messiah was to accomplish. They believed that the Messiah would be a political leader that would rise to power and free them from the bonds of the Roman Empire. However, before we're too tough and judgmental on these disciples, we must remember that all of Israel to this point had been under the rule of a foreign nation for six centuries. So what has changed? Jesus has been with them every day for the past three years, teaching them, performing miracles, and discipling them. Yet they still seem confused about what was actually going on. How could these same men all of a sudden preach with such authority? As I've mentioned before, one of the discussions that several of us men have had over the past few years was were the disciples saved when Jesus called them? Or was it here at Pentecost that they were saved? I'll admit to you that as I have studied this text, my view has changed. And while I'm not dogmatic about this view, I now believe they were saved when Jesus called them. Did they have all of their theology worked out? No. But how many of us had all our theology, theology correct The moment God saved us, that would be none of us. In fact, it is by God's grace and His grace alone that we make any progress theologically. Pastor Josh is beginning a study with the children during the Sunday school hour where he's teaching them about the disciples. And he said that the book he's using for this study is John MacArthur's book, Twelve Ordinary Men. This is a fantastic book and one of the first books that I read as a new believer. The first chapter is called The Disciple with a Foot-Shaped Mouth. This chapter is about the Apostle Peter. The same Peter that has just preached the first sermon of the church age. This man that was known to speak up when it would have probably benefited him more to have remained silent has just preached this powerful sermon under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And as we learned last week, 3,000 souls were added that day. That brings the church's first membership roll to 3,120. Point one, they had continuous devotion. Verse 42 says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The New American Standard Bible translates this verse they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And the King James translates it, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. The idea here is that (coughs) that their devotion to the apostles' teaching was continuous. What was the apostles' teaching? What did these men know now? What have they learned in just a few short days? How did they gain this knowledge as Peter has already told us in his sermon, this is a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. This is also what Jesus promised them before he was crucified. While in the upper room with the disciples, Jesus told them of the Helper that would come. John fourteen twenty six These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that i have said to you john 15:26 and 27 but when the helper comes whom i will send to you from the father the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father he will bear witness about me and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning and john 16:7 nevertheless I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. Now At this point, they still do not understand. However, three times Jesus encourages them by telling them that He must go away. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will come to them. And when He does, the Helper will bring to remembrance everything that Jesus has taught them over the past three years. So along with the Old Testament Scriptures and the teachings of Jesus, the disciples are equipped for the ministry of the Gospel. By the power of the Holy Spirit, they now understand. By the power of the Holy Spirit, they now speak with authority. Ezekiel also prophesied of this day. If you would like to keep your place here in Acts 2, if you want to turn over to Ezekiel 36 with me, I'll begin reading in verse 22. Verse 22, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act These newly regenerate souls, numbering 3,000, didn't just devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, but their devotion was fourfold. They devoted themselves continuously to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and of the breaking of bread and the prayers. Gathering together was now very important to them. As we saw in our scripture reading this morning, The author of Hebrews encourages the believers not to neglect the gathering as is the habit of some. That we might encourage one another. And when they gathered, they broke bread. They would come to the Lord's table. Remembering all that Jesus had done for them. And it appears that they did this every time they met. Again, as Pastor Drew said last week, this is narrative. And narratives are descriptive, not prescriptive. So this is not a proof text for how often we should come to the Lord's table. What is clear is that we should come to the table together. Whether it's monthly, like we currently practice, or whether it's weekly, we are commanded to come and remember. They also prayed together. North Clay Baptist Church is a wonderful church with many, many strengths. This is not an indictment. However, I would like to encourage us as a church that we could do better in corporate prayer. I know I can improve in my individual prayer life. Even when I think I'm doing well, it can always be better. The same holds true for us corporately as a church. We can always do better. We should always seek to do better. Prayer is a wonderful privilege And I'm afraid that individually as well as corporately, it is too often neglected in the church today. Verse 43, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. The word awe here can also be translated fear. This is a reverent fear. The same kind of fear that the book of Proverbs tells us is the beginning of wisdom. There was a fearful reverence. They were all struck by the powerful work God had done among them. By the many wonders and signs done by the apostles. And that as we continue to make our way through the book of Acts, we will see and read of the many miracles, signs and wonders done by the apostles. But these signs and wonders were not just not limited to just the apostles. In Acts chapter 6, we read of the seven men that were appointed and ordained for ministry. By this time, the church in Jerusalem was coming to grow, to grow at a very rapid rate and there were many Hellenistic believers added to the church. And complaints had grown that their widows were being neglected. These men were ordained to serve these widows, enabling the apostles to devote themselves to the teaching and preaching of the Word of God. And other than their names, Stephen and Philip are the only two we know anything about. Acts 6-8, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And Acts 8-6-7, and, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice, Came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Clearly, these two men were performing signs, wonders, and miracles, same as the apostles. Acts chapter six has historically been a prim- the primary passage for where we get the office of deacon. Whether this is correct or not is correct or not is really not important for today's sermon. However, I tend to think that much like. The office of apostle was unique to this age of the church. It appears that whatever office these men were ordained to was also unique to this era. Point number two, a common faith. Verse 44, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. The church was born here at Pentecost. This was not accidental. Though they had been dispersed throughout the known world for the last several centuries, they would have continued to make their annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover feast and Pentecost, also known as the Feast of Weeks. In our passage from last week, there was a list of 15 nations present when the Holy Spirit descended upon Jerusalem. These 15 nations would have represented the known world at the time. And while, they had, and while they likely had a common heritage as Jews, their cultures and upbringing in these cultures would have been far different. They would have had very little in common. However, in our text this morning, the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit creates in them a commonality that surpasses cultures, language barriers, and religious ideas. They were unified in Christ. The Apostle Paul in Galatians says this concerning the Law and Promises. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is still true of us today. And even as our nation seems as divided as she has ever been at any point in her history, we see that truth is under attack. Evil seems to be flourishing. And there is evil, even great division among those who name the name of Christ. 2,000 years of church history and, and we still can't all agree on essential doctrines. But I believe that the true church the invisible church, we are far more united than it would appear. Do we agree on everything? No. Is there coming a day when we will agree? I believe so. At least our disagreements will become fewer. And it is only by and through God's grace that we will achieve true unity. After all, we share a common salvation. and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. We must contend for the faith. Regardless of what others might think of us. Regardless of what it may cost us in this life. We must have Paul's attitude toward the things of this world. He was untouchable. He had to be very frustrating to his opponents. You threaten to kill him, and he responds, For me to live is Christ and to die as gain. Threaten to put him in prison and he'll evangelize and convert the prison guard along with his household. Beat him and drag him out of the city and leave him for dead. He'll get up and return to the city and continue to preach the gospel. Paul's zeal for Christ Jesus was unmatched. In verse 45, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This is not a proof text for communism or communal living. They were not combining all their possessions and distributing them equally. The text says that they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing them as any had need. They had everything in common. They seemed to be acutely aware of the needs of others. They recognized that everything they had was from God. They had possessions Their possessions did not have them. This reminds me of the story of the rich young ruler. He asked Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. Jesus tells him that he must keep the law of God. And the young man responds that he has kept these from his youth. Jesus tells him one thing you lack. Sell all your possessions and give them to the poor. And come, follow me. And the young man went away sad because he had great possessions. These first converts were marked by a selflessness that was unmatched in the first century. People took notice. The world was watching how these believers lived. They saw the transformation. Their selfless unity was so different, so unlike anything they had ever witnessed. Point three, they had complete worship. Verse 46 and 47, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Attending the temple was a pattern for the apostles throughout the book of Acts. The temple remained a place of worship during this time. This was also Jesus' pattern during His earthly ministry. Jesus regularly attended the temple, teaching and preaching the gospel, calling for repentance. In fact, the next thing we read in chapter 3 is Peter and John going to the temple at the hour of prayer. There would have been a great many people at the temple at this time. This was still a time of worship for these new believers. But rather than going there to offer sacrifice, they went preaching Christ crucified. Everyone would have been well aware of who this Jesus was and what these disciples were claiming. These are the very same things that got Jesus executed. Yet they were bold and unafraid to preach the gospel. In fact, it was a pleasure for them to do so. Their unity in Christ was unmistakable. They broke bread in their homes together. This is not the breaking of bread at the Lord's table. They shared common meals together. And they received their food with glad and generous hearts. They did everything together. They lived together. They learned together. They worshipped together. And they praised God together. As we've mentioned already, these early believers were from very diverse backgrounds. They represented the known world. The entire Roman Empire was represented in these first converts. For them to share such unity, for them to have this level of togetherness would have been impossible for them to manufacture on their own. It's not going to happen. They couldn't do it then, and we certainly cannot do it today. Only God the Holy Spirit can create this level of togetherness. They had favor with all the people. This favor extended beyond the believers to the average citizen. The way they lived, the way they worshipped, the way they took care of each other, and their love for one another was noticed by everyone. And as we continue to make our way through Acts, the church experienced remarkable growth in Jerusalem. And instead of returning to their homes, many of the ones that made the annual pilgrimage remained. And it's quite possible that many of them may have never intended to return to their homes. But in God's providence, the church began to experience persecution from the religious leaders in Israel. Many were either imprisoned or executed. And so, the church began to scatter. They began to return to their homes. The last part of our text says that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's passages like this and numerous others that give me such hope and encouragement. I cannot add to the church. Pastor Tim cannot add to the church. Pastor Josh and Pastor Drew cannot add to the church. But what we can do, and you can do as well, is proclaim Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We can preach the Gospel of which Paul says is the power of God unto salvation. In fact, our Lord has commanded us to do just that. And in conclusion, point four. Finally, this is the, <clears throat> this is the work of God the Holy Spirit, the promised Helper, the third person of the triune Godhead, So many of God's promises are fulfilled here at Pentecost and the world has not been the same since. God's new pattern for revealing Himself is through His Son Jesus and His church. As Christ's bride, there is no distinction between Him and the church. Before Paul's conversion, Jesus thunders out of heaven and asks him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus' bride, the church is very precious to Him. After all, He gave His life to redeem her. And He will never forsake her. And He is adding day by day those who are being saved. For the past 2,000 years, this has become the Lord's pattern. For the past 2,000 years, Jesus adds day by day those who are being saved. Like I mentioned earlier, the disciples didn't quite understand what Jesus was as the promised Messiah and what He was to accomplish. They thought that the Messiah would rule with, the mighty, with military might. That the Messiah would rule with the edge of a sword. Turns out that they were not as far off as, they might have, as it might have seemed. Jesus did in fact free them from the bonds of Rome. He destroyed the Roman Empire not with a physical sword but with the sharp two-edged sword of his gospel. The sharp two-edged sword of the Word of God, the same piercing sword that caused these 3,000 souls at Pentecost to ask, Brothers, what shall we do? The same sharp two-edged sword continues to pierce hearts today, day by day. The same two-edged sword that in August of 2009 pierced my hard, sinful heart. Thirteen years ago, I took my family to church because things were not going very well with us. Thirteen years ago, I took my family to church because I thought that I could earn points with God. I thought I could make a deposit in my account that would earn the Lord's favor. Thirteen years ago, this dead man took his family to church. But God being rich in mercy, extended his grace, and pierced this dead man's heart. I was dead, but God made me alive. And God's and by God's grace, it has been extended to my entire family, for which I am eternally thankful. All of us here today that have experienced new birth are the continuation of this pattern established at Pentecost. The acts of the Holy Spirit continues His sanctifying work in each of us. This is 100% God's doing. When Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Holy One of God, Jesus responds, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Today's passage is not meant as a program to be followed, a list of how-tos concerning church growth. Like Pastor Drew said last week, the work of the Holy Spirit cannot be manipulated. Some may try, some have tried. We should be very careful about what we attribute to God the Holy Spirit. The only unforgivable sin mentioned in the Bible is blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. One of my favorite verses um, is found in 1 Peter chapter 1. And it displays very well the works of the triune God in the life of the believer. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your grace and mercy, Your goodness towards us. We pray that Your Spirit will create in us this level of unity and togetherness, a unity and togetherness that causes the watching world to take notice. May we be a church marked by our unmistakable love of Jesus. It is in His name. Amen.